Hello, this is Lowell Thompson with Learning with Lowell, a podcast that covers healthcare, biotech, anything science-related really, or anything that really fascinates me. I'm open to input on that. Any suggestions or advice, send them my way. Go to learningwithlowell.com and subscribe today. I have Nick here today, the CEO, and Chris here today, the COO, co-founders of Biocera, a company that is coming out with a fantastic approach to antibiotics. As we all know, there's this big concern that we're getting these an- the antibiotic-resistant bacteria. They've come up with a way to eliminate the drug-resistant bacteria. Let's talk about that and more. Nick, how were you able to convince Chris to leave the dark side and, and join entrepreneurship? Um, I don't know. Uh, I... <laughs> it, it it really comes down to um you know chris and i we started in the same lab uh we both kind of had these entrepreneurial ideas um and i think really what, what kind of started it and chris you can you know obviously let me know if i'm wrong uh is uh when i when i started uh, grad school chris had had this patent that he was trying to get um you know pushed through from con- converted from a provisional to a uh an actual patent and, um, you know, we had kind of talked back and forth about how we would commercialize the product, how we would get it um, to a point where we could sell it and, you know, make, you know, make something out of it. Um, and then it basically just happened that the school that we were working with uh, to try to get this patented uh, was dragging their feet, dragging their feet, dragging their feet. And it basically uh, ended up not being anything because it took too long. Um, but it was just that, that process of talking about different, uh, ways that we can implement science into a, you know, profitable application based, you know, idea. I think that that really spoke. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I would say that, uh, part of it was, you know, seeing, uh, the status quo and, and, you know, Kind of taking for granted, okay, pharma knows what it's doing, like it's going to get drugs to the market, right? As, <laughs> as researchers, like we just have to, you know, keep discovering things and, you know, they'll just go through the pipeline. And, you know, but then we started doing some background research for our thesis project on, you know, these antibiotics that are, are failing and what the alternatives were and, and really realizing that um, there's not alternatives. And uh, so yeah. that, like, you know, I started thinking, okay, maybe just a little bit of confidence is, is necessary, right? To confidence that you could do something different. And, um, you know, it might not be the best thing, but it it will certainly be better than nothing, which is, is what's happening now. And so Nick was just, you know, consistently confident that (laughs) whatever we could do would be better. Um, and then just, you know, seeing that that, you know, it didn't just resonate with me, but it resonated, started to resonate with, uh, investors, with, you know, ex-pharma people here in St. Louis who act as mentors, um, you know, and even people who work at uh, larger pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, who hear about it and they're, you know, initially really, really skeptical, but just, you know, uh, you start talking about, you know, okay, like we really do have to do something differently and we have this energy to be able to do it and, and you know, zero bureaucracy to, to fight through to make something different happen. And so that was, yeah. you know, I got that confidence is contagious, I think. Um, well, thank you. I appreciate yes. that. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is just like this, this sense of, um, this can't possibly be the best way to do things. Uh, and, you know, growing up, 
I, I was always frustrated in schools uh, because I just I felt that what they were teaching and how they were teaching it couldn't possibly be the best way. Um, and there had to be a better way to do it. And so when, when uh, you know, I got into college and, you know, just learning about research and then going into graduate school um, and, you know, just bringing my knowledge base from, you know, general basics to, you know, this cutting edge space, just to be able to look at everything that we were basically just trying to figure out exactly what is known and where we are, where we can go from there. Uh, was really kind of cool because there is so much that's known. There's so much that's not known. Uh, and there's just these huge spaces, uh, of open, you know, research that we can do and, and just places that we can really just expand our, uh, commercial, uh, our, our commercial abilities and our, our, uh, uh yeah. No, I, yeah. I, can, I completely understand what you're saying. I, I'm, I'm the same way whenever someone's like, when I ask a question, they're like, well, that's just the way it is. I always think, well, why? <laughs> yeah. Why are we yeah. doing that? It's like, don't just don't don't answer that way to me, because like I will just I'll start picking it apart, and then I, they usually get angry by the by the time I'm done. Yeah. People don't like to be questioned. And it's the sense of complacency. I think it, the you know it's just as a graduate student, we're always told this is how it's supposed to be. This is the the seven year slog that you're going to take. And you know the question that always you know resonated in my mind was. Why? Why are you willing to accept this kind of treatment? Why are you willing to accept this timeline? It just, to me, it didn't make sense. Which, I mean, that in and of itself is kind of interesting because, like, you're being trained as a scientist to ask why about, like, yeah. very technical things, right? But then you question a larger system or, like, yeah. you know, your role as a graduate student, and all of a sudden there's, like, oh, yeah, that's that's not something we question. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um but actually, you know, working with our thesis advisor, you know, he's the exception to that rule, right? So he was gung ho for for starting a company and, and doing research that was like directly relevant to changing the way drugs are discovered. And you know, that's not something you can really get a grant for because it sounds too much like, uh, you know, big pharma or something, <laughs> right? Even though it's like, you know, we're we're like bootstrapping compared to you know an academic lab, you know? yeah. So yeah. What are some of the things that they say you should be doing, but you you guys have kind of like figured out a better way to do it insofar as like your company and in like building it is in regards to that? So I think the the biggest thing that we run into is we have this concept of drugs take a lot of money and time to develop. And what we said was, no, they shouldn't. Um, and so part of this is, you know, doing our own due diligence when working with different contract research organizations, when working with um, different contract manufacturing organizations, figuring out the best solution rather than just, you know, throwing money at it and hoping that it's going to work. And so part of what we've been doing is trying to ask ourselves, where are where are the gaps in our knowledge um, about our product, about our um, you know market, and just trying to fill those gaps rather than trying to completely reinvent the wheel. And I think that that's what a lot of people get caught up in is that they have to reinvent everything. Um, but the reality is, is that if they just took a little bit more time to find a slightly less expensive CRO, uh, one that's more flexible, things like that, they would find that the cost of drug development and the standard you know, operating procedure for developing a drug is much more flexible than they give themselves credit for. 
Yeah. And I would say, I mean, the other thing that people really want, you know, you can't see us, so you can't tell maybe that we're like 26 years old, right? And so, you know, the problem is that, uh, you know, pharma executives are, are usually like older um, people who've just kind of worked their way up through the process, really understand the, the intricacies of, you know, forming relationships with the FDA. Um, and, you know, so we're getting a lot of kickback, you know, basically, you know, find an, an expert who uh, can replace you, you know, who did, mm -hmm. you know, what big pharma has done, you know, and is going to be happy to do that for you. And, and that's something that we've actively resisted because, you know, the whole idea is doing something differently from yeah. the past. And, you know, actually the FDA is, you know, pretty receptive to, to doing things differently around antibiotics, especially because they see, hey, the model is not working. Right. Um, and then, you know, the other sort of, you know, I guess, uh, thing we're fighting against is the precedent of other younger pharma entrepreneurs, like, you know, say, Pharma Bro, right, who, you know, come out, you know, saying, you know, okay, we're going to do things differently, uh, but don't really have, you know, this sort of uh, ability to, to convey how that's not going to hurt people mm -hmm. um, in the process. And so, like, we have to really be clear about our, you know, our intentions and, you know, our uh, ability to, to be coached and to take advice and then to take that advice with a grain of salt um, yeah. and make a decision, right? So. Yeah, because, I mean, if we follow the advice of everybody that we talk to, um, one, our company would have died long ago, uh, either because, you know, there were too many problems that we couldn't overcome, which we've, you know, since overcame, um, or, you know, we weren't experienced enough to raise the amount of money that we would need. Uh, and so we would have given it over to somebody who not only needed to raise a bunch of money to get the drug developed, but also to pay themselves. Um, and so just being aware that there is, there are a lot of places where people that are established are going to tell you you need to spend money. Um, and you just really don't have to. Mm -hmm. Are there a couple examples you could list of like areas that common way of doing things says, you know, you have to spend X amount, but really you found that that's not the case. So, one of the things that we've done uh, with our with our first drug is we've gone after combination products um, rather than you know new molecular entities. And so the traditional mantra is create a new class of antibiotic, create a new molecule, um, and go from there. But what we decided to do was take drugs that we knew were safe, we knew were effective, and tried to reactivate their uh, effectiveness. And so what that allows us to do is not have to you know, know the individual PK profiles and the individual tox profiles of everything. Um, it allows us to use data that's already available to us so that when we develop our, our therapy, we can find out what's not known. Um, so that, that's the first thing. The second thing is, um, for whatever reason, there are huge discrepancies in the cost to do stuff uh, when we talk to different contract research organizations. We can have the same proposal uh, sent to 10 different research organizations and say, you know, tell us what it's going to cost. And we'll get ranges of prices from like 60 grand all the way up to $700,000. Um, and so just shopping around is something that I don't think a lot of people necessarily do. And because of that, they get themselves in this trap of, well, it's going to be expensive. Um, so that's just what it's going to be. Right. And I think, you know, one of the first uh, places we realized that was the, the pre-formulation campaign, right? Yeah. So, you know, initially that's that's something we just, you know, went out and said, hey, this is an antibiotic. Can you formulate it for us? 
and we're getting six figure quotes. Um, you know, but then when we sort of went back, you know, dug through the literature, provided a nice you know, summary of everything that's available to make, you know, our contractors work so much easier. Um, you know, all of a sudden those quotes start to come down and then next, right. Like as you shop around, you find who has a lot of work that particular month, who doesn't. And, you know, I don't think, you know, I mean, big pharma, I think has to, to operate on a, a very, you know, a strict, uh, timeline and, uh, you know, we're able to sort of be, um, flexible and fit in when people have space in order to save yeah. money. Um, and then, you know, because we're starting with, um, you know, already approved components that are generic antibiotics, um, we are able to do a, a freedom of information act request just yeah. to get, you know, all of this, uh, you know, uh, literally semi truckloads, uh, worth of paper, uh, for the, the initial new drug applications for each of the three components. And that has, you know, mountains of formulation data. So yeah, you know, really all you have to do is, you know, look for any gaps there, you know, predict what would be different in our, our combination. Um, and, you know, so I guess we should say, our, you know, our combination uh, has a, a new property um, in that it actually suppresses the evolution of resistance, um, you know, which is something that antibiotics have never really claimed before. Um, and you know, so in the lab, you know, we, we pulled apart the mechanism, you know, how this happens, right? Like how it traps this bacteria so it can't escape from um, our three antibiotics. Uh, but the, the, you know, the remaining question is like, well, does it do something new in the host then? Right. Like, is yeah. it going to, you know, you're going to have new properties for toxicity. Um, yeah. And, and really what it comes down to is finding the, the least questions that need to be answered. Um, rather than trying to, you know, characterize absolutely everything, which has been the, the kind of mantra and, and really just trying to figure out what are the questions that need to be answered for this to be a safe and effective drug so we can get to patients as quickly as possible. Yeah. It sounds like a very smart, like as I'm listening to this, I just keep thinking like that sounds like the most effective way to go about it. Like people need to be like listening to this way versus doing you know, the alternative way where you're just like kind of reinventing the wheel. Like, especially when the, the, the freedom of information, freedom of information act thing was like, I just, I like smile. I was like, that's, that's really smart. <laughs> yeah. We're kind of, we're essentially like journalists, right? <laughs> this is all public record. Um, and, you know, but it wouldn't work in a larger company, right? Cause like you have, you know, a discovery team who has to do, has to sign off on, you know, X, Y, and Z, right? Co-soluble, yeah. coast, you know, all this, you know, stuff that's already known. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I had a question when you're kind of like shopping around and you're getting like these, <laughs> in your case, like these really, really large uh, price differences when you ask for quotes, how can, how do you, how do you measure for quality so that you're getting like the most bang for your bucks? Yeah, that's a good point. That, that's something that we've really struggled with um, because you're right. Uh, there are, there are certain organizations that either a, just want to get your business because they're failing and maybe they're failing for a reason. Um, there are some companies that are like, no, we're giving you a lower quote because the other guys are just, you know, raking in profit because you, they perceive you as not being, you know, savvy or, or whatnot. Or, you know, it's, it's the, we don't want a small client, so we're going to charge. It's basically like a financial rejection. Like if you want to pay this you can pay this and we'll do the work for you. But our main clients are Pfizer and Merck and you're not worth our time. Um, and so just trying to suss out exactly what it is 
um, why the price is what the price is, it, you know, just that diligence of having the conversations, um, asking frank questions. Calling um, references has been really helpful because, yeah, I mean, there are people who, you know, they're, you know, they'll tell you, hey, not like straight up that, hey, this wasn't a good experience, but yeah, if I could choose between these two you're asking me about, I would go with the more expensive one, right? And yeah. then you know, okay, you're getting some value. Um, for the money that, that you're putting in. Yeah. And, and I think the, the, the most, most incredible one is when they give you references and the references that they give you, because I mean, you assume that they're going to give you like somebody who loves their product, but when they say, yeah, they're fine. Um, you know that it's probably not the best. You're, you're not getting the best bang for your buck. Um, and the best way, I mean, we found that, you know, that we can get people really excited about this because a lot of people who work in CROs used to work in big pharma and for whatever reason, you know, they, they left or they got frustrated with the bureaucracy. So, you know, if we can get somebody who, you know, really wants to make a difference in the way antibiotics are developed, you know, a lot of times it's people who've had relatives with, you know, serious infections. And, you know, so they, you know, can really kind of get invested on that level. Then, you know, okay, this is a, a long-term relationship we can build. Yeah. And, and especially when you can convince, when, when they can get excited and go to their boss and say, this is something that we should be doing. Uh, this is a client that we should have, um, not just because of the, the you know, amount of money we're going to make, but because it's going to actually make a difference and I'm going to feel better about doing quality work for a company that I know is going to help people in the long run. I think that's, that's a very powerful thing because they might not be the best company, but they're going to put their A team on it rather than, you know, paying more for a company that's like, well, you're not Pfizer, you're not Merck. So you get, you know, the B team, but you're still paying, you know, A team prices. Um, and so just being able to connect, I think with the people that you're working with is, is an incredibly important thing. Um, and you know, just trust your gut too, at the end of the day. Um, I think that's, that's very solid advice. Checking, <clears throat> checking the references because if, uh, like references are like your first date, you know, like if you're, if you, if you have like bad body odor on your first date, like that's like when you're your nicest, like <laughs> it's, yeah. it's all going to go downhill from there. Exactly. exactly. And, and yeah. then, uh, making, make sure to trust your instincts. I think, I think that's a, I think that's one that in my experience, most people play down. Like they think, you know, it's like a, like completely more like generic example. Like they're walking, they're walking alone at night and like, they're getting like this weird feeling that usually means like, get out of Dodge, like listen to that. Like don't, don't stay there. <laughs> So like yeah, if, these, right. if these people are giving you the, oh, they're, they're answering my questions, but they're answering it like kind of weirdly, like overly specific. Like they're trying to like steer me away from something like ask, like dig down. Cause at the end of the day, like you're going to be the one stuck holding the bag of, you know, responsibility exactly. or whatever's not working out. Yeah. Um, and the other thing too, that we found really helpful in determining who we should actually, um, you know, go with, uh, people that we can either a drive to or are relatively close by. Um, and the main reason for that is because if there's a problem, I mean, you can get on the phone, but if you have to take a flight to, you know, the facility, it just, it slows down the time you eat, you eat up extra cash that you might not necessarily have. And so being able to work with people where you can just drive to the animal facility, drive to, you know, their lab, um, that makes it a lot easier to, uh, work with, work with them, um, and get what you need to get done, done, uh, in a, timely manner because you know when when there's an ocean between you and 
your your contract research organization or your manufacturer, it makes things a lot slower. Um, and we, we've kind of experienced that when just trying to figure out where we're going to get uh, our active pharmaceutical ingredients uh, that are going to go into our final product. Um, it just yeah. So I mean, that's a maybe a good uh, example uh, without naming any specific. But um, yeah, so there's like you know you can only get these drugs from places overseas, right? Mm -hmm. So you know you're going to have that amount of uncertainty. You know, there's a you know eight hour, twelve hour time difference, and you know so if you can you know just simplify the communication with you know the CRO you're working with, then you know say you know something accidentally gets shipped to the wrong place and goes right to the the mm -hmm. CRO. You can drive down the road um, and get it right. We'll so there's it, yeah. just one less uh, node of complexity there. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, and the other thing is, like, I would say, like, find out who exactly you'll work with at the CRO because, like, you know, most of the sales, like, the salespeople are really, really nice. I mean, no matter where you go, right? <laughs> like, and you know, it's they're representing their company well, and they're, you know, they really, for the most part, are knowledgeable. But like, f figuring out which which person you're going to be emailing, calling when something goes wrong and how responsive are they? Yeah. Um, you know, how busy are they? Right. Like they could just no fault of their own, just be overworked. And, you know, you're like Nick said, a small company that doesn't really, you know, you're basically on an at cost basis for the first year or something. And so, um, yeah. someone who's excited that you'll work with on a daily basis is gold. Yeah. That's, I, I think the most important thing in choosing which CRO you're, you're working with. Yeah, and I, I think I think that uh, in what you guys are saying, it kind of echoes. I was interviewing this lady, uh, Sarah, who's a recruiter in in New York City, and she said like the like the most valuable thing that she tends to do is like meet people. Like she'll go in and meet a client who's looking for uh, you know a, a, you know developers or whatever you, or she'll meet developers because as much as a person sounds one way over the phone or through a Skype, like when you meet them, like you get a lot more like like even if even if like just a much more emotional attachment to people, it seems from like the way she was describing it. And it seems like it really worked out for you guys having like that, that proximity. So you can go like, Oh, this is, this is the person who's going to be my point of contact. You can kind of see how they're, they are in their daily life and see if it kind of tracks and kind of give you another avenue to ask those questions. Like, is there anything kind of like bumping up in my instincts or making me kind of concerned about it? Cause then it gives you another opportunity to kind of like, you know, hit that, hit the, the nail with the hammer and, and like work through those problems. Yeah. And, and one of the resources that we actually found really interesting and um, surprisingly useful is Glassdoor. Um, so, you know, outwardly, everyone's going to say they love their job, hopefully. Um, and if they don't, that's a great sign. Um, but using like Glassdoor or some of these other uh, sites where people can anonymously like rank rate their company um, have been actually very helpful because it lets us know how people feel about the work that they're doing. And so even if they love you, if the company that they're working for isn't flexible or isn't willing to treat their employees well, how are they going to treat their relationship with us? Uh, and so being able to have that extra layer of just vetting the company is really important. Definitely. Uh, talking about kind of the antibiotic treatment that you guys invented, going from Going from like a hundred years ago, where like Woodrow Woodrow Wilson's, I think, son died from like an infection from like a splinter, to to now where we have like some treatments. So where there's can there's concern in the future where like there things are getting really really drug resistant. Is this where the future should be going to ensure that there isn't like these like super bacteria type things that are drug resistant and we can't fight off? So there are a lot of different ways that 
people are trying to address this particular problem. You know, it's, it's either phage therapy or vaccines or antibodies. Um, we just decided to choose small molecules because it was easier for us to get the drug to market quickly so that patients can start seeing the benefits of drug development. Um, I don't think that this is the necessarily the end all be all, but for right now, I think that this is the best option that we have. And I'm looking forward to the future of, you know, antibiotic or, you know, vaccine therapies because there's going to be a lot of really cool things that happen and come out of this. But in the meantime, we need to stop thinking about the only way to create new antibiotics is by making new molecules. We have a lot of molecules already out there. Let's start trying to reinvigorate what we have so that we can start saving the patients now rather than looking for a cure 40 years from now. We, we, we need to start now. And this is, I think, the, the most effective way of doing things. Yeah. And I mean, our platform really is, you know, screening for things that don't just kill bacteria, but also suppress that resistance, which is, yeah. you know, a, a fairly, like, okay, it seems intuitive <clears throat> now because you hear about like <laughs> antibiotic overprescription and like resistance emergence. So yeah, why not give the doctor something that just will stop resistance from evolving, even if he overprescribes it or she overprescribes it. Right. And so mm -hmm. the problem, you know, is that just, you know, pharma hasn't really, you know, turned the ship that direction yet. And, no. you know, so I think, you know, our, like the longest impact that biosphere will have is really just, you know, kind of, you know, singing in this song of like, pay attention to antibiotic resistance. Yeah. And, you know, this is, you know, a great, you know, easy strategy. Uh, you know, just look at what you already have. How can you combine it, you know, to, to stop the, the dam bursting? Um, exactly. And, you know, really, you know, eventually there probably will be better therapies than you know, what we're proposing now, but this is really the only antibiotic that is, is doing what, you know, what needs to be done, which is suppress resistance. Yeah. And I mean, when we talk about legacy for the company and for ourselves, if we can get the market to start thinking about ways to make antibiotics long-term effective um, by either antibiotic resistance suppression or some other uh, mechanism, I think that that will be something that, you know, I can be proud of, you know, now and in, you know, far into the future. Just to give like the, the listeners some type of context, like how big, how big of an impact will this make? Like how many lives potentially will this be saving like in a typical year, if, if that's possible to know? Um, so the, you know, part of our strategy is going after uh, smaller, more deadly in, uh, markets. Um, and so the market that we're going after first uh, has about 11,000 deaths. Uh, and our hope is to bring that down to zero. Now we know that's not necessarily possible, but that's the first place that we're going. There are broader markets that we think that we could possibly enter into where we see, you know, the number of uh, deaths, you know, in the hundreds of thousands, um, uh, you know, in the future. But the, the most interesting piece of information that we got, um, was that, uh, it was, it was actually from a, uh, a report that the prime minister of the UK, uh, requested. And it was basically trying to figure out how big of a problem this is going to be in the future. And they estimated that by 2050, if things stay the way they are, um, we're looking at about 10 million deaths per year. And so our goal is to change the way things are so that that number, um, can stay can say as small as possible, really. Right. I mean, I guess our thought in going after that small market first is that's a group of patients that have just been abandoned by drug development, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, you know, so 
there are people who have MRSA bloodstream infection, so a severe sepsis, um, you know, where uh, any of the treatment options won't work, you know, vancomycin, dactamycin, um, yeah. ineffective. And so, you know, to go after that 11,000 uh, deaths, you know, that's really 80,000 uh, patients infected per year. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just not a, a big enough market with the bulky infrastructure uh, pharma has to pay for. Um, yeah. So we know, like, okay, first of all, limited competition there. Uh, so it's a good proving ground for this uh, this drug. And two, like, these people are, you know, they're dying and there's not really hope for them. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, that saddens me the most about this is that, you know, our, our drug will take three or four years, we think, before it, you know, gets in the market and people starts being affected by our, our therapy. Um, and in that time, 40,000 people are, are going to, you know, pass away because there just aren't the tools available to physicians. Start, start with the extreme and like slowly work in because then you, you can really, like if, you, if you're getting like 11,000 deaths a year and like you're, you guys go to market in like three or four years, like you said, and then that drops just like drastically, like, I mean, you can really chart your impact. Like, I think that's, and like all those people are going to know like, oh, these are the guys like Nick and Chris, like, and, and their team, like they saved my life. You know, like that's yeah, pretty valuable. I think I always like to know who I'm thanking. Who brought me <laughs> a sandwich? You know, who, who saved yeah. my life? Like this is, these are things I would want to know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing too, from just, you know, a company development standpoint is if we know it works in the worst case scenarios, it's probably going to work, work when, you know, the, the stakes aren't as high. What are some of like the big major milestones that, you need to get through to get to that saving life stage? Like what are some of the things that you're working on and what are some of your, yeah, just some of the things you're working on? So I, I guess the, the first thing is, is that we think we're three to four years away. Um, the FDA has to still tell us that we're three to four years away. So the first thing that we're going to be working on is, you know, getting a confirmation from the FDA that our development plan is solid and, uh, you know, is going to take as long as we think it will. You know, we have regulatory consultants we've worked with, you know, regulatory contract research organizations, and we think we can get there. Um, now we just need the FDA to give us the green light. So we've been pretty careful in, you know, putting together this you know, bulk of uh, preclinical data, you know, both our, you know, our own data and, you know, the uh, Freedom of Information Act data. Uh, but, you know, we haven't wanted to, you know, push the FDA into, like a default position, you mm. know, where they would say, yeah, you have to just do what antibiotics normally do. And we've wanted to lay out like, okay, these are the expedited approval pathways that, you know, the FDA already has in place. And this is how we think we fit into them, you know, because we're, you know, 505B2 potential product, right? So combining things that are already approved. Um, and we're going after this orphan indication, um, and we're going after a qualified infectious disease. So, I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, interest uh, from the FDA side, but we just have to really lay out the case so that yeah. it's easy for them to, you know, qualify us for those pathways. Yeah. So this, <clears throat> this would fall under like orphan drug status. So you get like a bit of an expedition, exped to a speeding up. I don't know why I'm having problems saying that word. Like it, it, it speeds it <laughs> up a little bit. That's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Our, our indication hasn't ever been um, designated as orphan. 
Uh, and so that's part of the, the you know, the, the challenge that we have is how can we make the argument that we are orphaned? Um, even though the population is there, there's always the potential that they'll look at us as a subset of the population rather than as our own indication. And so really trying to lay down the arguments um, in an effective way uh, has, has taken a lot of our time. Um, but at the end of the day, it, if successful, um, that time and effort that we put into this will pay off in dividends. How do you know, maybe, maybe you don't know, but um, how do you know when you're going in the right direction with the FDA? Like how, how do you know, like these things that I have set up are probably going to get me to the point where they'll say, yes, go ahead. Like <laughs> it's, it's very, it's tough to know. Right. So like there's the FDA is really responsive to anonymous phone calls, right? Like just, asking for clarification about guidance, right? They publish a lot of guidance documents yeah. and you can sift through it all day and then you'll get to some point and you're like, okay, like this really doesn't, you know, exactly fit with, you know, this situation I'm looking at. And yeah. so they'll answer questions, but you know, the, the real um, benefit is this pre IND meeting where you just send the, the FDA a list of questions um, and they will tell you like, yes, like this is how we will treat this when you actually apply to do a clinical trial. Yeah. So it gives you a little bit of wiggle room to, to put yourself, you know, in a really good place for that clinical trial meeting, um, yeah. the IND meeting. And, um, the, I guess the, uh, catch 22 there is you only get one of those meetings because otherwise you, people would just be there all the time. Right. Yeah. Um, so you, <laughs> that's why we're, we're making the most of that shot. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, the at the end of the day, the FDA is going to do whatever the FDA wants to do because that's their job. Their job is to make sure that everything that they approve is safe and effective. Um, and so we just have to make sure that we have as much data as is reasonable to convince them that our data and our product um, show that we, you know, we have a, a safe and effective product so that they don't have to worry about, you know, there being some, you know, huge headline that says, you know, new FDA approved drug, you know, has to be recalled because of some severe adverse event. And so that's, that's really why we want to take a very careful and considered approach when we talk with the FDA and, and as we're developing our product. There was a, a, a documentary that just came out. It, um, I read about it a, a couple of years ago, but like in, in the UK, there was a uh, like they they tried like this drug that went from like mice to humans, and there was like this really horrible re reaction to it, and like this guy like lost fingers and stuff. So like yes. whenever whenever someone kind of like when I, I talk to a variety of people, and sometimes they say look all the FDA or like these drug trials that take really really long times, and, and, and you know um, they're there for a reason, you know like <laughs> you don't yeah, you don't yeah. want someone to go faster than they should. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and those. So an interesting thing uh, around that is uh, how the clinical trial is designed, right? So I think in that case, people were very overconfident, and so they actually dosed the patients within like 15 minutes of each other, and so they all end up having the same exact set of side effects. So like when we're designing our clinical trial, it's it's very heavily influenced by that, where you know it's one person at a time, you know, at very very. Um, a minimal changes from what's already given in the clinic, mm -hmm. um, working up to, you know, what, exactly what we'll finally give. So, so if there is a, an event, it won't be as severe. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's a really a harrowing tale. Yeah. And, and I think the, the big mistake that a lot of companies have, especially in the biotech space is they view the FDA as kind of their adversary. 
And in reality, they're not. I mean, if you get something that's FDA approved, um, you, you have a, an FDA approved product. I mean, that, that shows that not only is your product effective, it's safe, it's going to do what you say it's going to do. And because of that, you have something with, you know, an extreme amount of value. And just thinking about, you know, the relationship that you, you want to set up with the FDA, it's more of a, how can we work together so that we can save patients' lives in a safe and effective way? Um, and when you take that approach to the FDA, um, it makes things not only easier for you, but it also makes things easier for them as well. And when you make something easier for the FDA, um, that's always a good thing. Right. Well, and in building our team, we've sort of uh, set up, I guess, like almost an internal adversarial process, right? Like yeah. Our, you know, our, one of our first advisors is um, a quality guy, um, you know, and so his job really is when Nick or I come up with um, an idea or, you know, a way of sourcing these drugs or manufacturing our therapy, you know, he's right there, you know, to, to shoot it down from like a worst case scenario <laughs> perspective. Which is really helpful. Like he's he works in you know big pharma, medium pharma as a professional quality guy, and he's able to look at our our stuff and say, "Yep, this is exactly like where this could potentially go wrong." And um, yeah, yeah, it's better to to have that laid out. You know, whether or not the FDA ever asks for that, you know, just internally like quality first, and then you know then treatment. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, going to that, uh, you know, Chris and I are in a position where we're going from our PhDs to running a drug company. Um, and one of the things that, you know, one of, one of the problems that I, I, I see with the biotech space is that there's this gray hair uh, bias. And basically, if you haven't done it, you won't be able to do it. And I think that one of the ways that we can really guard against that uh, so that we can develop our company, so we can get the experience, we can do what we think we can do best, which is develop our drug and save lives, um, is finding people, you know, like our quality guy who have the gray hair, who can see where we're going to make mistakes, who can advise us and make sure that we don't make those mistakes so that when we go and talk to the FDA, when we go and put our drug into, you know, healthy volunteers, we're giving the best possible product. And that goes a long way in um, showing credibility to the FDA as well as the investors, just recognizing where our, you know, lack of knowledge is and making sure that we can fill those those holes so that everything goes smoothly i would say yeah <laughs> same way like with the cro's right you have to interview i guess a lot of people um and that's just it's really networking right so mm -hmm. you know we spend a lot of time just talking to people casually i mean just like we're doing now right and some some people get really excited about it and are like you know what like Heck, like I'll I'll help you guys out on nights and weekends just because you know it's exciting. And yeah. Like I see things in my daily work that could be done better, and um, this is my opportunity to really make something out of that. Yeah. Um, and I mean, really, from our perspective, it's it's you know just uh, a great place to be here in St. Louis because I mean, Pfizer used to be here, so you've got a bunch of ex Pfizer people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Malincrot. I mean, it's nice because. So, so I think part of it is, is kind of serendipity, you know, just the fact that we're, we met the right people at the right time. Um, and we said the right things in the right way to get them interested. Um, <clears throat> but also it's just, you know, paving, you know, pounding the pavement, talking to as many people like Chris uh, said, um, as possible so that you can actually 
increase the likelihood of those uh, interactions. And a lot of times, like, you know, it's, you know, it's the second or third degree of, you know, oh, you know what, like, Al was just telling me about his friend who's really excited about it. Yeah. You know, and so that's kind of, you know, I guess like the the interconnectedness of this sort of entrepreneurship uh, ecosystem, if you will. Um, And like there's people who like we have never met face to face, but like they are on the coast and they do startups for a living. And so they're excited to see like, you know, younger people like us, you know, giving it a shot and just want to tell us what they've learned. And yeah, so yeah. Yeah, because there is this sense of there's a better way to do things and how they're being currently run um, isn't necessarily that way. Uh, and so to have people like us who are able to, you know, go in without any biases makes the whole process better for everyone in the future. There was a <clears throat> there was a company. I have, a, I have a question first before I go off an anecdote. Um, so like like, uh, conferences, uh, going to, for, for when it, when it comes to like networking and like really getting out there, like kind of like, would you recommend like going to a conference that is nearby? That's kind of like in the field that you're looking at. Like, how did you guys go about, uh, like the networking aspect of it? Some of it was conferences. Some of it was, um, you know, there's, uh, entrepreneurship, uh, happy hours, uh, around here. And I think, you know, honestly, like the, the less, formal the situation probably the more likely people are you know to really sort of start to connect yeah you know so it's i think for us like you know it's been half like presentations conferences and half like just you know finding somebody you know in an article or on linkedin and saying hey like do you want to have some coffee and you know, talk about what you were doing how you overcame this challenge you know and then from there like they they can introduce you like yeah you know like my manufacturing like for instance like we were having trouble uh sourcing our drugs and so you know i took a someone out to coffee who was sourcing not drugs but um detectors for a diagnostic device she's like yeah you know the manufacturers of this manufacture this detector for uh self-driving vehicles where like they order a hundred thousand per vehicle and i just want five you know and so then she really explained like okay this is how i negotiated with them and like you know just looking at her linkedin profile i wouldn't think okay she's got you know, exactly the solution to the problem I'm having, right? Like she makes, you know, diagnostic sensors from self-driving car parts, but like that sort of just like serendipity, like you only get just by talking to everybody. Yeah. Um, and then following up with people in a very targeted way. So making sure that you're not just, you know, you don't want to waste their time and they don't want to waste your time. So making sure that any relationship that you do really try to form into more of a professional you know, interaction is, is something that, is going to be mutually beneficial for everybody involved. Yeah. And I would say being really clear about that too, right? So like, you know, whether it's like a, an informal friendship or whether like either side sees it developing into like a formal advisory, you know, just like clarifying that on the second date, you know, um, because otherwise expectations can diverge. And yeah. that's, yeah, it's not good for either side. Mm-hmm. When you do clarify, is it just like a, a simple, frank conversation like, oh, looking for an advisor or looking for someone who just to hang out with and talk about these things? Or is it is it, is it different or more complicated than that? So it, it depends on the person. Um, personally, I think that the truth is always the quickest solution. Um, and so if you just if you're frank, I believe that you're going to you're going to be in a better position with everybody um, because you know, the cards are on the table, you know what you need to do. 
Um, and uh, they, you know, don't feel, you know, cheated long term because, you know, they had a different expectation or wasn't like spelled out crystal clear. And I think the more clarity that can be given in a frank way, the better the relationship is going to be. I mean, I think that's that's pretty accurate. I mean, the, the challenge is when, you know, sometimes you have these needs uh, as a startup that are kind of amorphous, right? So you're yeah. not sure, like, if you really, you know, if you want to develop this relationship for it. But just, like, saying that, right, and saying, yeah, hey, we don't know what our, you know, our long-term strategy for, for you know, just take quality, for instance, is, you know, but, you know, we know that we need somebody to, to talk to, um, you know, so this is, like, you know, like how long we think it's going to take and, mm-hmm. you know, but we can adjust that expectation, you know, as your time availability changes and as our need changes and yeah, just having that written out or, you know, at least verbally out there. Yeah. And, and especially if it's just, you know, that, uh, like, look, we know this is going to be amorphous for a while. Um, you know, that in and of itself is valuable information for them um, because they can then take your lead rather than try to figure out what you want. They, they basically default to what do, what do they need and how, you know, when they need help, they'll call me. Because, I mean, working for a startup as an advisor is hard, right? Because, like, you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're kind of interviewing for a job in a way. Like, you're like, oh, like, you know, I like these guys. and But then, like, you know, the, we're also interviewing for a job with the advisor, really, because, like, they have limited time and there's a lot of startups out there they could help. So, you know, there's sort of this, like, weird... Um, you know, it's not one person who decides kind of thing too, right? Cause like you could say, okay, this is what we're looking for. And I could be like, actually, like, I don't have that kind of time. And that would put me in a conflict because this venture firm wants me to consult for them instead, you know? Yeah. So that's, you know, it's, it can always change. And like, um, like I just never assume that we're like so desirable to work with, that <laughs> you know, we have our pit, you know, so, so just like, I guess like a little humility and a lot of clarity. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you, were to I don't know, advise or try to like train someone to like have your guys' skill sets or like learn more about this or like learn how to like when you I kind of do what you guys are doing like how, what is the better way like are there any resources or like or anything that you found that really helped you get either of you get to the point where you are now that you think would benefit other people to know about so when I when I was first trying to figure out whether or not I wanted to be a um, entrepreneur, found a startup kind of a thing, um, I listened to a lot of different podcasts, and there was one thing that really kind of stood out to me. Um, it was I think the recordings of the uh, startup class that Y Combinator gave at um, Stanford, and you know, and at the very beginning, the guy um, you know who had founded Y Combinator goes. I don't know why you're in this class and I'm paraphrasing obviously, but um, I don't know why you're in this class, but if you want to start a startup, start a startup. Um, because I mean, I, I've taken business classes, I've taken, you know, biotech entrepreneurship classes and the reality is they're great if I want to tell people what I know about startups, but they don't give me any real experience when it comes to actually doing it. Um, and the real world is oftentimes incredibly different from, you know, the made up situations that you put yourself in, in a classroom. And so just really 
taking the chance and diving in and, you know, knowing that there's no safety net uh, really, I think, lends itself to the type of creativity that is important for a startup. Yep. And I think, yeah, that's, yeah, creativity is pretty key. Well, uh, that's, that's basically what the, what the Greeks did when they were trying to destroy uh, Troy. They were like, you, you guys don't get to go home until I just, so they like burnt all the, all the ships so they'd fight harder. <laughs> so that's what you got to do. You got to like find your metaphorical ship, burn it, and then like build a Trojan horse and you'll get in there. <laughs> you will yeah. get, you will get them. So I think that's a better answer to the question. How did Nick convince me to burn my ship? <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean no but like yeah because like you can i mean you listen to the stories of all these you know successful entrepreneurs right and like none of them really comes in with like a common skill set and like none of them faces yeah. the, exactly the same set of challenges but i think really having the confidence that like you as a person who you know uh, is dedicated to a particular question or idea can figure it out and can make it work yeah right? and like you know one of our our mentors are first investor, you know, is like, yep, yeah, you know, maybe the science works, maybe it doesn't, but like I'm investing in you guys to figure it out. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's pretty, you know, that's a lot of responsibility and that's, you know, once you've taken that on, it's like yeah, your ship is kind of burning. Cause, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's really, as soon as you take that, that first dollar from, you know, the person that's investing in you, they're kind of your boss in a way because, I mean, you know, you may own the company, but you're you're only able to do what you want to do because they believed in you. And you really have to take that <clears throat> kind of, um, you know, founder investor relationship really seriously because, you know, they they believe in you. You know, they could have invested in a bunch of different companies. They could have invested in, in a bunch of different opportunities or they could have done nothing with their money, but they chose you. And because they chose you. You know, they're really, they believe in you and you have to be confident enough in yourself and your problem solving abilities to be able to take that, that, that money and make something great out of it. A component of like that, putting yourself out there, getting the experience. And like, I think a lot of people get this feeling of like, I don't have enough of X. I don't have enough of Y. I don't, or, you know, whatever it is, like they just allow this wall to exist that stops them from, from whatever doing that they want to do. And in my experience, because I, I do consulting for like uh, small companies, big companies, and some startups, I've always been surprised, and not necessarily in a bad way, but I've always been surprised by how successful a company can be, and yet like not be efficient at all. <laughs> like I've always been like, how did how did so much money come in? Because like I I would think like oh you have to be really decisive, have to have like this like so crystal clear vision that you know what you're doing. Like every like before I like had this experiences, I would be like I would think you have to have like all this knowledge. And like more often than not, they're just really good at asking like, like, what questions do you need to know? What, what, how do you solve those questions? Like ultimately if in this day and age, you have the internet, you have the ability to contact, like I can, we can be having a conversation. Like you guys could be in China right now. You can get anyone if you really try hard enough, you know, seven degrees of Kevin Bacon in this situation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's just like, whatever's like sitting in your way, like, you don't have to be like totally risk averse, but you can t take like a, a smart bet and be like, oh, let's let's put this out there and like talk to this person, and try and gain information and answer this question or, or or set up a scenario where once these questions are answered, you'll like like catapult you into doing what you want to do versus just sitting there wishing that you did something a year ago 
And, you know, like the, I think there's like a famous quote that says like the best plan, the best plan is, uh, the best plan is, uh, doing it today. The second, no, the best plan was starting yesterday and the second best plan is starting today or something like that. Like the best time to do something. And it's like that the entire point of it is to like <laughs> do and, and, uh, like have a, have a great plan, of course, like know, know where you're going, but like, don't, don't go so detailed that like you get stuck in the minutia, I think is like the point I'm trying to write about. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely the case. Right. And I think that's, well, in our case, it helps having, you know, two of us, right? Because, like, <laughs> you know, especially as scientists, maybe like we have this ability to latch on to something that we think is really cool and like, you know, dig in and then like, like Nick has to haul me out of a hole and say, okay, like actually like big picture, like, you know, this is not like the, the make or break detail and, you know, and vice versa. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, it's really impressive when you see people who do this all by themselves and like, you know, I, I just, I can't fathom that. Um, yeah, I, I think it takes a really special person to be able to do it by themselves. And I think that having a co-founder, you know, whether it be one or two, um, but really just having somebody that you have a good working relationship, like you don't even have to be friends. I mean, thankfully Chris and I are friends. Um, but as long as you can trust the person that you're working with to do the job that they need to do, um, and, and to just compliment you in, you know, your skill set, you know, then that you can, have, you can get what you need to get done, done. I mean, there have been times when, you know, I've been sitting at my desk just freaking out and Chris is like, no, no, no Nick, it's, it's not that big a deal. Uh, you know, we could just do this and you know, same, same thing. Like Chris said, it's just this ability to work with somebody and, you know, talk each other off the cliff sometimes, uh, because, Everything has a solution. You just have to be creative and find it. Yeah, which I think I think that's another thing where I've noticed that sometimes people feel like how oh, they've been defeated or whatever. Like like something in their life is like stopping them from doing what they want to do. And it's like no matter what you've been through, like you got through it. You know, like at, yeah. <laughs> the worst case scenario in any scenario is that you'll die. You know, like if like yeah. <laughs> anything anything less than that, it's like okay, that's not so bad. I get I get tomorrow. You know, like you're. Like the as long as you get another day, like you, you can still keep fighting. Right. Uh, that, that, that's absolutely true. Yeah, and I think I mean the the fun thing about it too is um, you know just uh, like there there is like a, the emotional roller coaster, but like with all the times that you're on the cliff, like that's that's actually what makes it exciting. I think that's why people do this entrepreneurship stuff is that they're like pushing limits. Like how far can I go before like I, <laughs> there's not a tomorrow? You know? Yeah. I know, but it's like you know it really is like. Um, you know, what, what is a, a job and what is my, my day like, you know, challenging that, I think. Yeah. And I think the best part about, you know, being an entrepreneur is that I know what I need to do and it's up to me to figure out how I get there. Whereas, you know, in, and then that's basically the same thing in science. Like we, <clears throat> we know what we want to do. We want to publish a paper. We want to get our PhD and how we get there there's no set path and figuring out what that path is, I think is, is one of the most exciting things that I've, I've, I've ever done. Cause like, I know what my 13th step is, you know, buy a house on the beach. Um, and I know what my first step is start a company, but it's figuring out what the steps in between are that, um, that really excite me. Well, I, I think the exact same thing. Like if, like there's, there's definitely an easier way to go about things. Like if, if you, like you could get like, 95 job and someone kind of tells you what to do 
and it's like every day like you can't really tell them apart so at the end of the year you just kind of think like what did i do this year maybe next year and like like that's that just sounds sad like you know, like, like do what you yeah. want to do but do it in a way where like eventually hopefully on, on step 13 you get to live on a beach you know yeah exactly <laughs> right <laughs> well and i think like in that nine to five job center right like the the one thing is like okay does my do i get a promotion like do i get a raise or something like that you know and so like in this in this scenario right like every single day is a promotion or a raise because like yeah. you know you're, you're learning how to do like you know marketing or like mm-hmm. you know market quantification even, right like, like you're just um i don't know like there's never a time where you're not being asked to do more or like trusted with more right yeah um <laughs> and so like i i mean that's really what people <clears throat> want i think is you know to to always be challenging themselves yeah uh, you know how when, when you hire somebody you have a job description <clears throat> I don't think that there's a job description that's vast enough that could accurately describe what Chris and I do on a daily basis. And that, that's kind of part of the fun is that there's always something new to learn. Um, and there's always the opportunity to fail at learning that thing. And so figuring out how to prevent that from happening or just, you know, hedge against that. It, it, it's so maybe, okay, you're not getting a promo- You're getting a promotion and you're getting fired every day. Yeah, right? basically. <laughs> 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 no wonder I have gray hairs as a 26 year old. <laughs> yeah, that solves your gray hair problem. It does. Yeah, I can go to investors and be like, "Look, I have some." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talking, uh, circling back to this, I think it was mentioned a couple of times that you got some like outside investor stuff. How, how do? How did that go about and how did you learn about like the like managing that component of the company? Uh, um, trial and error. Um, <laughs> so so part of it is, you know, we are students. And so one of the you know benefits of being a student is that um, people feel bad saying no. Um, not from like an investment standpoint, we've been told no by a lot of people, um, but yeah, from an investors don't care. Yeah, investors don't care. But um, but from an, a mentorship standpoint, they're much more willing to give us, you know, an hour of their time. And so we have some investors that I have personally never spoken to, and we have other investors that I speak to on a day on a weekly basis. Um, and I just call them up and say, hey, this is the problem. This is how I'm thinking about it. Uh, do you think that this is the right way to be thinking about it? Or do you have some experience, you know, that tells you that this is the absolute wrong way? Um, and most of the time they'll say, that seems reasonable. Let's find out. Uh, but, you know, just being aware of the type of relationship that they also want and finding investors that are willing to give you the type of relation that you want. And you don't need everybody to have that same relationship, um, but you do need to be able to have someone with that type of kind of, I, I can just call them up and say, this is the problem I'm having. Um, is my thinking correct? And I mean, people invest at this stage for very different reasons, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's really high risk. It's like one of the higher risk investments you can make, but you know, it's, you're having an impact, you know, beyond just, you know, the potential upside, right? You're, um, basically asserting your belief in this uh, entrepreneurship economy. And so you're investing in the, the drug, the development, the team, 
know, and you know, the ability of, of people to to change an industry. Yeah. So I mean, there are some people who are um, you know a little bit further along. You know, they have their own company. It's a you know a husband and wife actually. Who, you know, co-founded a biologic company, and uh, you know they just are excited to see other people doing sort of a similar path. And you know, so they're they're helpful in guiding us. You know. Like what did we struggle with at your stage, mm-hmm. you know, and obviously funding was one of those things. So, <laughs> so we'll invest, you know, um, but, um, you know, the other, you know, is that you know, some people are just, um, they realize, okay, like one out of every 30 of these companies is going to get us, you know, greater than a hundred million dollar exit. So if I put a little bit into a lot of these companies, you know, never really like mentor, um, people or whatnot, like, I just have a pretty good shot at um, making a lot of money. So, like, we have both of those types of people. Um, yeah. And uh, I'd say, like, it's, you know, if I was an investor, right, like, I, I probably would want to be involved and, and know exactly, like, what everyone was doing. But, um, you know, only if I could actually, you know, add something and all of our, our investors really do. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe they don't add something right now, but they will add something you know, at some next step and whether that be time or money or connections to, you know, people that could help us with a problem. I think that at this stage in, um, you know, developing a company, your investors should have, they, they should add value, not just from the financial side, but also from a, who can they introduce you to and have they done this before kind of, uh, um, you know, experience. In a way, yeah, every investor at this age has the option to be a, an activist investor, if you will, right? Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, and, you know, our first investor really, you know, he's um, he's contributed money, but, like, much more valuable than that has just been, you know, his time and experience doing this before. Yeah. Um, and his gray hairs as well, don't want to hurt. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and in terms of finding the investment, I think, you know, he – so I, I met him through a, so he was he was a guest lecturer for a class that I took. Um and I decided that my idea was valuable enough to just cold email him. <laughs> um and, and you know, part of part of being an entrepreneur is having that sense of kind of chutzpah that, you know, y- your product or your mission is va- is is worth somebody's time. Um because really time is the most valuable thing. And so, you know, just having the ability to have that conversation with him, believing um, that we had something that was worth investing in, uh, helped a lot in finding the investors that were going to be able to get us to the stage that we are now. A bit more of a broad question. How much, and maybe you can answer specifically as well, I just don't want to be like, how much does it cost to build where you're going? But like, how much does it cost uh, typically for like a company to go from like a, zero where you guys started to where you are now and then to get to that like four year mark like is there like a like a a rule of thumb that you found after questioning everything that makes more sense so no we've we've challenged the rules <laughs> so the rule of thumb is uh uh probably at least 10 million dollars if you know big pharma is going to do it right go oh, way more than that <laughs> uh the 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 the, the rule of thumb that I found was is that small pharma uh, can do something at about a fifth the cost of big pharma 
and startups can do things at about a fifth the cost of small pharma. So, I mean, there are a lot of factors that go into it. And, you know, at the end of the day, the FDA is the one that's going to tell us exactly what we need to do. Well, and so, I mean, at this stage, we're, I mean, we can say we're, we've spent less than 200,000. Yeah. Which is unheard of, you know, to get to the stage where you have a drug candidate um, that's been tested, (laughs) you know, for toxicity, for its, you know, its profile in the body, right? Like that's, that's pretty unheard of. And, you know, part of it's because like, okay, Nick and I don't take salaries, right? We're, um, we're students, right? I mean, we're just really excited about this. So you don't have to pay us a lot of money to stay around, right? Not yet. anyways. Not yet. Um, and so that really cuts down on overhead. Um, and then you know, we're able to outsource and fit into the gaps of these CROs development plans, right? Where, you know, if they're going to have somebody they're paying to do nothing, right? Like they'd rather have us pay, you know, startup rate, um, for them to do something. For them to do something. And, um, that's been how we've cut the budget to such a, an extreme. Yeah. And, and the other thing too is it's just, um, not being afraid to use equity to incentivize people. Um, I think a lot of times co-founders uh, or you know founders uh, in general do as much as they can to protect their equity, and I think that that's a good practice in general. Um, but at the end of the day, if you can make the pie worth a billion dollars or you know however much it is, whatever slice of that pie you have, it's going to be worth a lot of money. Um, more money than probably you've ever seen in your entire life. And so just being, you know, just not being greedy, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you know, working with the people that you need help from. Right. I mean, ultimately, like, yeah, we love a big exit, but like, really, like, we just want to get this drug to market. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't know if you'd pick up on it, but we kind of also want to stick it to Big Pharma, right? And say, hey, we, <laughs> we can do it with. Uh, you know, spending a ridiculous amount of money and, you know, wasting so much time, you know? Um, well, and the benefit to that too is, is that, you know, we don't have to be uh, a pharma bro. We don't have to be a valiant pharmaceuticals. We can be a company that provides a therapy, a life-saving therapy to people that doesn't cost them an arm and a leg when they're, you know, when their life is saved, you know, they, they can go home and live the li- live their life. Uh, without having that, you know, huge medical debt, uh, you know, preventing them from from living their life. Which uh, it can get. <laughs> like I've been in the hospital a couple of times. Like that, that stuff really does rack up. Um, so like that, even even if even if like your company only did that, I think that'd be extremely valuable. Um, I was thinking of a qu- okay, yeah, I remembered it. All right, so <laughs> I was thinking of a question. Uh, this no more of a statement, but like. This idea like that, like people who are, you know, have the gray hair and have been successful doing things a certain way, like they, they give advice on how to do things their way, you know, like how they were successful. It doesn't mean inherently just for the people listening that that is the right route. And that's, I think that's like the underpinning to this entire conversation, which is like, feel free to question authority. Like that's kind of like, it's kind of like, it's a, it's a fun thing. Yeah. Well, and Go ahead, sorry. sorry. I was just going to say, because it helps them grow, hopefully, if they're open to it, and then it helps the world and it it educates you. That was the last bit I was going to say. No, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we've come to people um, who have gray hairs. We've said, hey, you know, this is the problem that we're having. Like, how would you fix it? You've done this before. Um, And then they'll come back to us and be like, that's a problem. And we're like, yeah, we know. 
<laughs> and, and, and yeah, and, and so this idea of just, you know, the status quo doesn't mean anything. Right. And the interesting thing is like you, um, it's really noticeable when there's, like, I don't want to, like when there is somebody who's been in pharma for so long and then they're, they're actually willing to you know, rethink things. And, you know, like that's, you know, the kind of people we immediately try to get as advisors, but yeah. I mean, like that, that is pretty incredible. If you can, you know, see the way things have been done and then also question it, you know, like, cause like if you've seen things work, it, you know, in, in pharma and see how much it takes to make it work, right. It takes a special person then to go back and, and question all of that. Right. Yeah. And so that's like where our quality guy comes in. Um, where a regulatory uh, consultant comes in, you know, people who, you know, really do want to to improve things, even if like it means kind of taking a step back and saying, hey, like these whippersnappers just taught me something, right? Yeah. So yeah. there's a book. There's a it's like an Italian book. the The title's really weird. It's like one one many us one many we or something like that. I'll I'll look it up for people who are like, lol, what the heck are you saying? But the the concept is that like. Everyone around you, like, doesn't see like most most people only see the version of you that they want to see, and it's basically they see like like a sliver of like who you are, and even for yourself, like you only get to see like a, a portion of who you are, and all of these things like when they're like aggregated together become like who you who who you are to a great extent. So like when people give you advice, like I always think like who are they giving the advice to? Like when they say like oh you should do A B and C, it's like well what part of like when I asked, like, oh, what should I be doing here? Like, what part of me do they see that made them feel that that was the right advice to give? Like, like for for example, when you when some people ask for advice, like, oh, what type of career should I get in? And they're like, oh, well, you're good at math. You should be a mathematician, for example. And it's like, okay, well, I, I can tell which part of me they're seeing. But then, like, you take you take that in in conjunction with like all the other aspects of you that maybe you're seeing or other people have, have noticed, and then you kind of like build that together to do something completely unique and new. But I think it, I think it's very valuable to know that like what, what advice people are giving you, like there's no guarantee that that's the best advice for, for them or for you. And like, just like, like feel free to question things. I mean, that's, that's like, especially in America, like we do not, we do not like Kings. <laughs> we will kick them off. <laughs> it's like, that is like, that is like, that is the fundamental thing of, uh, of our country. Like, if you're like this monarchy person who's like, you have to do it a certain way, we're like, why? <laughs> Come make me. And like, we build something else, you know, like, so there's like definitely some, some value in uh, questioning authority. That's how you got democracy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think more and more now, anyways, as we get away from like the, the 90s and the early 2000s, there's this idea that companies can run not from a top-down approach, but you know, through this idea of leadership by, you know, leadership from behind, basically let it, giving, giving your employees, giving your investors, giving the people that you're working with the, uh, the power to make decisions and to just let them know, you know, where we want to go and having them also figure out how they're going to get there. And, and, and just this idea of, of empowering and enabling your, the people that you work with to help you build a vision for a company that's going to make everybody, um, you know, better off. There's like some, there's, there's like research out there that like the, the top three things that people really love to be like invested in a company. And if you get your employees invested in a company, like 
that's like game changer. They're they're going to go home thinking like, how do I make this company successful? How do we you know save lives in this situation? And it's you know autonomy, responsibility, and to some extent like even accountability. Like people want to be held accountable, but like if this kind of like is a direct contrast to micromanagers out there, where it's like, yeah, like why hire someone if you're going to like if if you tell that person exactly how you want it to be done, like that's how you want it to be done. Like maybe let them know what the problem is and see how they come up with it. Because at the like to some extent you're you're hiring for perspective. You're hiring for a different way of viewing the world, so that when Nick or Chris is is down, you know Nick, you know your part, you know the other the other co-founder can be like, hey Nick and or Chris, I don't know why I did this line of thought, but um, this is something that you missed. This is a unique perspective that I have because I'm not micromanaged. I feel like I'm invested, especially when I'm a co-founder. But um, and then they help out much much more. Yeah, and I think like yeah, you're right. Like if someone is empowered, right? Like all of a sudden you don't just get like what they can type on a computer in a day. Like you get what's in their mind. And, <laughs> you know, and I mean maybe it's easy for us to to see that at the start because like I mean we're just like we're really hungry for what's in our you know our advisors' minds and the contract research organization. Like that's like that's what yeah. all we are. Like we're a, a company of you know ideas aggregated into something that you know will save people. Yeah. Um, but you know that's that's real currency and especially in today's day and age right like, like that's how you get ahead is is by thinking differently yeah um, well and and my, my perspective has always been if you want a machine buy a machine um, if you want if you want somebody if, if you want a problem to be solved hire a person um, because a tool isn't going to be able to solve that problem necessarily yeah. somebody using that tool is and if you want a machine right buy a machine so you don't have to have like two middle management structures between <laughs> you and it, right? like, yeah you say this is what i want the machine to do and that's what it does exactly i don't have to pay you know wages or overtime or anything it's just gonna work and yeah there's not like you know five project managers to manage the project managers who manage <laughs> the machines, right yeah yeah so Nothing against project manager. That that's kind of what our job description is. But, yeah. <laughs> um, kind of sounds like the the. I think it's the snake in Norse mythology that's like eating its own tail. It just kind of goes on for eternity. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I forget its name. It has like a very Norse name. It's like Rigna or something like that. <laughs> well, and so one of the one of the things that one of the people that I think really shaped, um, I, I think our thinking, uh, you know, my thinking to a very large extent is a guy named Bob Chapman with Barry Waymiller. Um, just this idea that if you can, if you treat your, the people that you're working with like people, and if you give them the opportunity to do great things, they're going to be more likely to do great things because everybody wants to be able to do great things. Yeah. And I mean, his thought is like, if you go home and you're happy about your job, um, like, you're still secretly working for him, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like you're, buying, you're you're solving problems in the shower or wherever it is, mm -hmm. right? And like, uh, you know, that's that's a, a win-win because like you're happy about it. It's fulfilling. You mm -hmm. know, your family life he shows is better. Um, you know, you're just a happier person um, because you like your job. And it's not that hard for the employer to do that, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just very different from how we traditionally view employment. Yeah. I mean, it's also funny now, you know, because, you know, we don't really employ anyone at this stage, right? It's all yeah. like, uh, you know, so it's kind of funny because, yeah, everyone is is choosing to be involved to whatever extent makes them happy or fulfilled. But, like, I guess something to keep in mind is, 
like we try to grow and build on that is to preserve that sense of um, like autonomy and mm-hmm. you know where everyone actually contributes what they want to contribute. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then a lot of it is knowing yourself. Like I know that there are certain times when like I shouldn't talk to people because I'm not in a state of mind that's going to produce a result that is going to be beneficial to the company. Um, and then there are other times when, you know, it's, it, it, I, I should be talking to people because I'm engaged and I can get other people to be engaged as well. And so really knowing yourself and knowing, you know, how you are, um, is very helpful in building a company and a culture where you're going to create, you know, growth. Yeah. And, and also, to that, you know, when, when, when companies talk about culture, you know, a lot of times they're like, do they think like me? Are they somebody that I can go have a beer with? And I think that that's kind of silly, um, mostly because there are a lot of people who are much smarter than me that I necessarily wouldn't want to have a beer with, but that love their job, are committed to that, that you know, that goal of building a company. Um, and it's just not necessary. It, what is necessary is finding a group of people that are committed to the main idea of let's develop a drug so that we can save people's lives. And how we do that, you know, that's that's I think way more important. Yeah. Although this is all being said uh, in the city of Anheuser and Bush, like in a <clears throat> startup space that's funded by Anheuser Bush. Yeah. And like, where we do drink a lot of beer. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and there, there is sort of like this, I guess, the sense that, you know, you have to like uh, just, you know, be like friends at a, a you know, a party all the time mm-hmm. at work. But like the thing is like it actually does get pretty real and pretty stressful. Yeah. And so having uh, people who you actually want to be with under that sort of situation, right? Yeah, that's um, way more important. Yeah. And it also prevents groupthink too, which is, is a real problem that we see um, in established industries and even startups that aren't really startups anymore, but are you know giant billion dollar companies. There, there's a sense of this is what we want you to be thinking, and I think that stifles a lot of innovation. I, I understand the motivation. Like, I understand like why it's so easy to let that like slip in. It's like, oh wow, everyone's agreeing with me. Everyone's agreeing with me. I, I must be great. <laughs> let's let's keep yeah. let's keep doing that. It's like. No, like I, I want like one person on all my teams. I want one person designated as the kick me in the shin guy. Like his entire or her job is to just like counteract me. Like that's a fire team or whatever the journalistic term is. Like you, your job is to just be a, like be a jerk, but like be like thoughtful in being a jerk and like picking everything apart. Because then then you put it back together and then it's probably even better. Like like I can I get why that's difficult, but it's so valuable when you can maintain perspective and get people to not. Just like, yeah, yeah, we're so great, we're so great. This is, you know, this, this is the way. Because then you're kind of like becoming that which you don't want to be, which is like probably a Nietzsche thing. And I mean, I think like we, you know, that was a turning point in our Nick and I's relationship. Actually, is like, you know, like there, initially there has to be like you do have to pump each other up, get a lot of enthusiasm yeah. from. <laughs> but then like you know, there's this period where like we have to, you know, okay, like actually that was not that was not a good thing you did you know yeah. like this sort of um like accountability thing and that that's a painful process to, to oh, yeah. transition from like just being friends to like okay like there's a lot more on the line here that's yeah you know beyond our relationship and like you know we've kind of talked about like you know would you go into a you know, business with a friend right like 
like after after knowing what it, like the risks are and like yeah. maybe not you yeah. know like it, it's good it worked out for yeah. the two of us but like yeah that was a that was a risk um, yeah. yeah well and there was like this I, I would say almost like a three to six month period of time where you know I, I I was getting really frustrated because I'm like you know we were we were all online and then now we're not in line and just figuring out how to work in a way that you know just basically realize that you both have the same goals we both want to make this company successful and we may not agree on the best way how to make the company successful but at the end of the day you both want the company to be successful and you know either just figuring out a way to make it work is is a really valuable uh, life lesson and you know I, I think you know, if the company fails or, or not or succeeds, um, that's one of the biggest things that I'm going to take away from this whole experience is figuring out how to work with anybody. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, everyone has the goal of, of success. Yeah. And I think just like seeing that, um, like, OK, there's priorities in that relationship. Right. Yeah. But that relationship has to be you know, it has to withstand. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a marriage, right? Like, the, you know, the company, like it rides on like being able to talk to each other and problem solve. So like that's yeah. number one. And then priority number two, you know, is like whatever the most important problem like that has to be solved immediately is, Yeah. you know, and then like the longer term strategic things, right? Like finding alignment on those. Um, but recognize that's actually the value we add is that conflict, right? Cause like mm -hmm. if it's just Nick, like going out there, like pushing a strategy or if it's just me out there, like, yeah, this is what I think we should do. Like somebody eventually is going to challenge that. And yeah. it's better <laughs> if it gets workshopped internally, you know, where we have a, at least like, even if we don't change that direction, at least we have like justification for like, okay, yeah, this is like why we think this is the best course of action. Yeah. Well, and it's always funny when, when somebody asks me, he's like, Nick, is this just your thinking? And I'm like, no, it is definitely not just my thinking. You know, we, we've absolutely gone through the, the pressure testing. We've talked to the people that, that you know, are, are most essential to the success of this company. And this is why we think it is the way that, you know, the way the answer that I gave you is just because this internal conflict uh, helped us to come to an answer. Um, that is better than what I originally thought on my own um, because now we have the justification to back up that decision or we've changed that decision in such a way to make it um, a better one. As, as people listen in, like you kind of see like keeping to the mission, like you're going to have different perspectives on how to get to the mission. But as long as you keep like the central idea in line, but there's a, there's a good like a analogy for uh, of this in the writer's room when it comes to making a movie when when all the writers kind of understand like where the movie's going like what the point of the movie is and kind of like build the story around that like everyone um like the movie comes out really really nice but like when you don't you get like really weird frankenstein monsters <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening today please subscribe leave a review check out our website learningwithlowell.com or join my mailing list i'm here to learn and share what i learn New episodes every Tuesday, new emails every Monday, and I blog on topics that I find fascinating.